Hey, it's Jed Hearn, host of Wizards, Warriors, and Words. If you're enjoying the writing advice on this show, you might like my new podcast, The Jed Hearn Show, where every week I share the best fantasy writing advice that I've learned from publishing three fantasy novels and a best-selling video game. There's over 12 episodes that you can listen to right away, including my top 10 fantasy books of all time, how to make fantasy names that don't suck, two rules that make writing effortless, and my complete summaries of Brandon Sanderson's and Neil Gaiman's writing classes, and much more. Check it out by searching for The Jed Hearn Show in your podcast app. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Wizards, Warriors and Words podcast. We have a special midweek episode today because I'm interviewing an author who, while he doesn't write fantasy books, is one of my favorite authors. And uh, we've interviewed each other, interviewed each other? I've interviewed Gabe quite a few times over the years. So I thought I would continue the tradition, even though I'm on a different podcast now. So I'm joined today by a very special guest, Gabriel Bergmoser. Gabe, do you want to introduce yourself to the show? Oh man, um, um, no is the short answer. Um, <laughs> I I can't stand doing the um the old the older self self promotional, um elevator pitch thing. But no, so I'm a Melbourne based author. Um, I write a lot of different things. I've written YA. I've written for adults. My first adult book, The Hunted, came out last year with Harper Collins, and uh, I've got a new adult book coming out very soon, the The Inheritance, which is a follow up to The Hunted. And in between, I've had this YA book, The True Color of Little White Lie, that's come out as well, which is it, it could probably probably couldn't be more diametrically opposed to the two <laughs> other books, like The Hunted and The Inheritance are both like very full on, very visceral, very violent, very kind of extreme action thriller horror stories. And True Color is this very sort of gentle coming of age, uh, like the way, way back meets the in-betweeners type thing. So so look, yeah, I've, um, I've sort of pretty much written in whatever genre or medium I have been allowed to, or, or people have felt, you know, willing to let me work within and um and hope to continue doing so and that's basically the uh the the general gist i think that's it and i don't know what you're talking about with true color being different to the hunted because they have indistinguishable colors for the covers both orange books um yes so both, yeah yep. you know, and they're both yeah really tender explorations of being in the australian uh, outback and discovering yourself Absolutely. And particularly like, you know, I think, I think in the third act of True Colour when, um, when, you know, Nelson snaps and goes on a killing rampage and there's mm. scalpings and there's um, decapitations and all of that stuff. I think, I think that's probably the point where the two books stylistically dovetail in a probably unexpected way. But, uh, but prior to that, um, yeah, you know, you'd be forgiven for thinking that they were fairly divergent works. 
Yeah, that's right. And um, yeah, you know, ski lifts can be used for quite creative means when it comes to various, you know, forms of murder. Oh, there's a hundred percent of sort of possibilities somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Would you ever cross over those uh, two worlds? Because Nelson is like set in Australia, Hunted is set in Australia. Would you ever have well, they take place in the same universe? Yeah. Um, they. That- oh yeah. No. I um. I. I mean, it's it's not a very well kept secret in that it's it's not a secret, but. In my mind, pretty much everything I write takes place in the same kind of shared universe. Sure. So there's little, there's little, and ref, I think, how do I put it? Um, there's little references in True Color that in my head, if, if I'm so lucky to kind of get more books coming out, are sort of tying into other stories that I'm kind of working on at the moment that will also in turn kind of tie into the hunted verse, the hunted, the inheritance type things a little bit more. So, so I, I think the, the, the short answer is it's possible, but it's not probable because I, as much as the characters of Nelson in true color and Maggie and the hunt and the inheritance exist in the same universe, I think they exist in very different worlds. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, Nelson lives out these kind of, quirky awkward rom-com stories and maggie lives out these you know john wick wolf creek type <laughs> vicious uh, uh violence thrillers so so i don't know if there's a huge amount of like crossover that wouldn't feel in any way natural but in theory you never know i look forward to the day when you get big enough that you can just be like i just don't care what people think about anymore nelson's gonna, gonna help maggie it. take down some melbourne crime lords good times yeah yeah <laughs> nelson would probably like maggie quite a bit actually because very uh yeah Hannibal Elector-esque in a lot of the things yeah, that she does. And you know, it's funny because I've thought about this. I'm like, you know, if they were to meet each other, like how would they get on? And I'm like, mm. well, I think she'd like, he would probably be quite enamored of her. And I kind of feel like absolutely, she would yeah. have absolutely no time for him. No, like, she'd be like, who is this kid who's like pretending? Yeah, go away. What are you, what are you you're, like, you're worried about like, you know, which girl you're going to talk to or what's going <laughs> on or whatever. Like, like, go away, leave me alone. I've got people to scalp. Yeah, exactly. And he'd be like, scalping? Oh, I've only read about that. Can I see it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, there would be there would be some some pretty cool crossover there. Um, yeah, so maybe it's a good jumping off point to start talking about uh, the true color of a little white lie, which I read the early draft of that uh, probably two years before it actually came out. Um, so it was very a interesting while ago, to yeah. see it progress from that point. So yeah, for people who aren't familiar with the book, could you just give like a, another one of your famously enjoyed brief pictures about what the story is? Oh, my favorite, favorite part of the job. Um, no, essentially, True Color is the story of Nelson, the character who we've just been talking about, probably very confusingly for those who haven't read the yeah. book or have no context for what the book is. Uh, Nelson is a 14-year-old kid living in a small country town, and things just aren't going all that well for him. Like, his, his best slash only friend has just moved away. Uh, the girl who he's got this massive crush on has rejected him quite humiliatingly, and the school bully's kind of always targeting him, but he sees the opportunity to reinvent himself when his parents take over running a ski lodge at a nearby mountain resort. And he realizes that when he's up there on the mountain, he can effectively be whoever he wants to be. Like he's not weighed down by the baggage of being this, in his own estimation, loser who he is at school. But of course, reinvention is complicated and the few little white lies that he tells to sort of bolster his image in the eyes of the people living up there end up spiraling out of control and turning into something quite a bit more uh, worrying and more um, more awkward and difficult than he was probably angling for in the first place. I don't want to give too much away there. I mean, maybe later on we can sort of get into some more spoilery territory. I mean, it's not like it's a book that that is going to be crippled by you sort of, you know, knowing 
certain plot points from later on like it's not a it's not like a wildly unpredictable story or anything apart from the aforementioned uh scalpings and massacres that happened i was gonna say we have given away the big twist uh, well exactly so now that that's done you know i mean what's the what's the (laughs) point i think everything's fair game but um but yeah it's it's to me it was something that i wrote uh actually funnily enough around the same time as i wrote the first draft of the hunted Hmm. and you know i'd written a lot of um contemporary dramedies more in the theater realm than anywhere else before. And I'd, I'd always sort of wanted to write YA, but, and when I say YA, I mean, obviously I'd written YA before with the Boone Shepherd books, which were these sort of quirky Tintin meets Doctor Who meets Lemony Snicket type stories. But I, I'd had always wanted to write something that was really just about the experience of being a teenager because it is so formative and, it's funny, in, all, in a lot of the interviews I've been doing around True Colour, this theme kind of keeps coming up of like, why do adults feel like they want to write YA and why are increasingly more and more adults reading YA? And I think it's because mm. we get to a point in our lives where we realise that our teenage years, whether we celebrate them or we want to pretend that they never happened, are crucial to who we end up becoming as adults. I mean, that's the time when it's not a hot take to say that's time, obviously, when you're transitioning from being a child into being an adult. But at the same Scandalous. time, it's like the things that... I know it's shocking, isn't it? (laughs) But the things that happen to you at that point tend to be the things that begin to shape the person you are going to be for the rest of your life. Mm. And that's why I think it's such a fascinating territory to explore in a narrative sense, because in some ways it it allows us as adults to look back with a fresh perspective and sort of work out, well, what were the things that shaped me? What were the things that happened to me during those particularly awkward formative years that led to who I am today? And how can I how can I recontextualize them or reanalyze them through the prism of fiction? And that was sort of unconsciously maybe the starting point because I didn't realize that was what I was doing until probably after I'd written the book. But when I wrote it, it was just an absolute blast to write. And I found myself really enjoying it, really wanting to kind of write more in this vein. And it was also just so wildly refreshing after writing something like The Hunted, which was so violent and full on and extreme and blood drenched. And the fact that True Color Uh, ended up being picked up for publication to come out not that long after The Hunted meant that it sort of it sort of was always following on in the footsteps of The Hunted in terms of when I was doing the editing when I was doing the promo when I was doing all of those things and so at every step it was a nice shift to kind of go into Nelson's world after spending so long in Maggie's world and Mm. then to kind of duck back again to the inheritance and then to go back into the YA world for the next YA book I've got coming out so it's 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 been a really strange but gratifying experience to juggle these two vastly different genres over the last couple of years in these two different worlds which as i gave away before are the same universe but very different worlds that's interesting so the fact that you had to kind of yeah juggle doing these two vastly different tones and styles that actually made the process easier for you you would say or like you were able to to kind of manage that back and forth quite well look it's a, it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand um it is, it means that you never really get bored. You know, mm. you're not you're not stuck in one mindset creatively for too long. So I'm not stuck there uh, constantly living in the, the world of the hunted. And I'm also not constantly living in this world of like teen angst and, uh, and you know, is my crush going to talk to me? Why aren't my friends hanging out anymore? All of that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, it does mean that 
you do have to be able to change gears pretty drastically. I mean, mm. particularly over the last few weeks, I've been working on the screen adaptation of The True Colour of Little White Lie at the same time as I've been doing last minute edits and rewrites on The Inheritance. And sometimes I'm doing both of these in the same day. And if you'd asked me this like four years ago, I'd be like, oh, I need, I need so much time to move from this mindset to this mindset because they're so different and everything. Whereas now in a weird way, it's like, no, you, you sort of have to learn to be able to, to force yourself to go from one to the other. Mm. And that is refreshing, but it is difficult because in a perfect world, we would be able to, to, to hone in and just sort of be within the mindset required for one genre in a bit more of a complete way. But if you're writing both, unfortunately, you have to find a way to do both. So, so yeah, it's it's been great, but at the same time, it has had its own challenges. So, is there any exercises that you kind of do to to get yourself shifting between those two different tones? Like, do you read a little bit of what you wrote the previous day in that book to kind of get back into that mindset, um, or is it just like you just turn up and just hope for the best? No, it's look, it's probably somewhere in between those two, to be honest. So, as I've gotten older, weirdly, I've become less inclined to reread anything until the manuscript is finished hmm. and that's not to say that I don't I mean sometimes I have to kind of edit on the go if I'm on a really tight deadline or something but generally speaking I prefer to just sort of write it and just kind of pick up the next day and to not look back until I get to the end and then I read through the whole thing and yeah. it's it's always rough and it's always rife with problems and all of that but I tend to find that I'm able to view the whole a bit more effectively if I haven't gone back and self-edited too much as I've gone. So I don't reread anything in that vein as such, but I do, I mean, like I always start off my day, I guess my, my working day with a, with a walk. So I'll take my dog for a walk and I'll just sort of leave my phone behind and I'll think through whatever it is I have to be writing today. So whether it's the next chapter of something, whether it's an outline of something, whether I have to solve some issues in a story that I'm planning, I'll just kind of put myself in that mindset as much as possible and go for the walk, think it through. And usually by the time I get home, I'm ready to make a coffee, sit down and just dive straight in. And often I find that if I don't dive straight in, the thoughts and the ideas and everything I've sort of figured out while I've been away tends to tends to dissipate. So it's good to good to kind of just like get straight in, get to work and get it done and do that. But if I'm working on two projects in one day, it means it's a two walk day. And my dog is very, very happy. My dog, my dog <laughs> loves it when I'm doing that. He, he doesn't know what's going on, but he adores it if, you know, after two hours, I'm like, all right, Humphrey, we're going for another walk. And he's yeah. like, this is Christmas. This is the best. And if he gets, <laughs> yep. And if he gets three walks, if I'm in a particularly busy for a long time you know i'm walking along like stressed as hell wishing that i smoked so i could chain smoke cigarettes and find myself at some kind of sure. you know proper solution but um but for humphrey it's the best day ever so i think uh my stress levels are inversely, inversely proportionate correlated. to my dog's joy levels yes <laughs> so that explains why your dog has been submitting your projects to more publishers to, to generate more work for you and more stress very clever yep, move, exactly humphrey. it's his it's his secret agenda one of the things I um, really actually appreciated about uh, The True Color, which I, in my head, I always say like Nelson and the Gallagher, but I'm like, no, that's not the title of the book. It's changed. Um, one of the things I appreciated about it is like, it reminded me of a lot of passages of your blog in a lot of ways. Like, obviously it's very much Nelson's story and everything, but just the, the kind of like self-awareness through how he is describing the things he's going through and everything. It kind of reminded me a lot of the bits on your blog that really like, have struck with me over the years. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned is that there are a lot of autobiographical elements in True Color. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk to that experience a bit. And I guess what I'm specifically interested in is like 
how do you kind of like remember and empathize with what it was like when you were at the age of, of 14? Because obviously you're not at that age now, I'm not trying to make you feel old or anything, but um, you know, I can, I can remember things that I was going through when I was that time, but I'm not sure if I have like the ability to like really put myself in the mindset and the emotions of being at that age, if that makes sense. So just wondering if you could kind of talk to that a bit. Okay, so the, so the answer to this is a little bit long-winded and it, it sort of comes in a few different parts. Sure. So when this book was first acquired by HarperCollins, my publisher, Lisa Berryman, asked me two questions. And I have, I think, written about this before and spoken about this before, but it, it is crucial for what I'm about to sort of explain. The first question Lisa asked was, is this book autobiographical? And I was like, yes, a lot of it I have taken my own life. The second question she asked, and this one, it took me a little while, I think, to, to fully understand was, are the lessons that Nelson learns in this book the lessons that you wish you'd learned at that age? Interesting. And when she said that, I, I didn't kind of have the answer straight away because I hadn't thought about it before, but it stuck with me. And the more I did think about it, the more I realized, yes, yes, that is the case. And that brings me to this really um, strange project that I did when I was about 18, where I was a aspiring writer and as most aspiring writers are when they are very young, I was convinced that I was this incredibly interesting person who had had this singularly yeah. unique experience of life thus far. And so I wrote essentially a manuscript that was like a novelized version of my high school years. It wasn't, it was written as if it was fiction, but it wasn't fiction. There was nothing in that that was, uh, that was you know, embellished or changed or anything, at least insofar as I understood it. Mm. And it was sort of only later that I looked back at that and I was like, this is just really boring and really <laughs> self-indulgent. And, sure. you know, there, was, there, were, there were experiences that I had thought back on very fondly and I wanted to write about because I think in some ways I wanted to relive them or recapture them or, mm. or write them down for posterity maybe. But, but dramatically, they don't work at all. You know, they don't, they don't really serve any purpose apart from, oh, I like this, so I want to write about this. And after Lisa's question, I thought back to that project. And I realized something, which was that True Color is based on a time in my life when my parents did run a ski lodge on Mount Buller and I was having a tough time at school and I went up there and I did sort of realize that I could reinvent myself and be a bit different and change who I was because I didn't really like who I was at the time. But in real life, nothing that dramatic actually happens. Like there was no love triangle. There was no ski race. There was no real anything. And there was really a decapitation on the ski lift though, right? There was that a decapitation is, on the ski yeah, float. Just want to um, check for yep, the police. No, I've solved a 16-year-old old crime in admitting that. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it was, it was one of those things where I'd, I guess that experience has stuck with me so much that I wanted to, I wanted to write about it in some form or another. Mm. But by the time I came around to being interested in doing that, I was well past the point of being deluded into thinking that anything I really went through as a teenager would be remotely interesting as a story. And so my first step, of course, was how do I embellish this? How do I build from this? How do I make this more interesting? Yeah. Well, you, you add in more drama. You add in the love triangle. You add in uh, the issues going on with the staff. You add in the ski race. You add in all those yeah. bits and pieces. Um, the, the whole kind of heist section around the middle of the book where they have to drive <laughs> out a troublesome customer. Like all of that was fiction. But what, I, what Lisa's question made me realize was that in some ways the true color of little white lie as it exists is a more honest book than 
a genuine factual recounting of the real life events could have been because in real life you don't realize the worth of certain experiences or certain lessons until much later you experience them you might know on some level subconsciously that this is an important thing that i'm going through but it won't be until five years later when you look back that you realize oh that was actually the lesson i learned from that or that was how it shaped me whereas in fiction those lessons can be a lot more immediate those realizations can happen in the moment and so i kind of realized that i had written a book that was intensely personal that had packed in a lot of concerns that mean a huge amount to me and that have been big going concerns in my life to varying degrees but they weren't really things that were on my mind when I was 14 in that ski lodge. But by using the framework of real things that happened and filtering in real realizations that happened in the years since, I think I came up with a book that was more me than any, you know, uh, really autobiographical thing could have been. Sure. And it's interesting that you said that about the tone of the blog, because, you know, in some ways, like, obviously Nelson is, is, it's very much based on a younger me, but he's also not me. You know, he's mm. he's a much kind of more self-aware, much nicer, much smarter kid than I ever was at that age. And anybody who knew me at that age can definitely vouch for the fact. I mean, in some ways he's idealized, but I've, I've played up other things and, you know, doing all the things that you do in fiction. Yeah. But his voice in some ways, I think, reflects the, the writing voice that I have now when I'm writing as myself, whether it's a blog or an article or whatever it may be. And so in some ways that's kind of a more natural, comfortable fit than the more sort of terse, taciturn style of the, of the Maggie stories. But that makes me wonder sometimes, I, I, I think, you know, is this book really genuine to the experience or the voice of 14 year olds? Because I'm writing it with the voice of a 28, 29 year old adult. But, and, and so, and there were criticisms early on from people saying, well, you know, he sounds too, he sounds too polished here or he sounds too articulate here and no 14 year old speaks like this. And so I've tried to kind of split the difference between saying the things that I want to say and him having the realizations that I wanted him to have while still making it feel authentically rooted in that adolescent voice. And to be honest, at this point, I don't know if that balance was successfully achieved. All I know is if you read a book written genuinely how most 14 year olds think and speak it would be utterly insufferable and <laughs> the reason i know that is because as a teenager i wrote that book and it sure. sucked <laughs> hope to read it one day but no i think it definitely no, uh no, no, you don't nobody <laughs> does um it would definitely ruin the the string of perfect books that i've been reading by you recently so would uh, probably not want to do that no but i think it, it's definitely worked well and, and yeah to your point i think that's where the best fiction happens is when you kind of have this kernel of truth and then you build around all the entertaining external stuff that that draws people to a story like that uh, and there's a lot of stories that are probably just doing the kernel of truth like maybe some of those purely autobiographical non-embellished things that you were writing when you were younger and then there are a lot of stories that do just the external embellishment fun parts um, and both of those are sort of missing out because they're one is you know lacking the entertainment aspect and the other one is lacking the actual meaningfulness to it and i mean the other thing is you know like like what like this is going to get very philosophical but i mean what is truth because one of hmm. the things that i uh, one of the things that i remember so vividly and this comes back to that autobiographical experiment was that at the time i was writing this thing and in retrospect probably quite stupidly sharing it with a lot of my friends and you know it was quite a no holds barred perspective of 18 year old me's view of of them and the world and everyone sure. around them but I guess maybe in some ways, some of my friends at the time 
either felt inspired by it or more realistically felt the need to rebut. And a lot of them actually started <laughs> doing their own versions. So they, so it, oh, that's it, it was cool. a weird period where like a lot of my friends, including myself, were like writing these novelized, <laughs> not quite diaries, not quite novels, not quite, I don't know what they were. Yeah. But at one point, and this is one of the most fascinating things that ever happened to me. At one point, a friend of mine shared with me the thing that he was writing. And he'd described in his writing the same party that I had described in part of my writing. So we'd, we'd had the same event, we'd written it from two different perspectives. Now, it was this party that we went to some point in year 10. And at the time, I was going there trying to impress some girl. And I turned up wearing what I thought was a very suave suit. In reality, it was just like a badly fitting slightly stained thing I found in the op shop and nice. you know I, I turned up thinking I was going to be like really charming and I was going to you know win her over and everything and I got there and it turned out that she had this guy she was seeing and I kind of brooded in the corner as you do when you're that age like probably realistically listening to the killer's Mr. Brightside the whole time being like <laughs> why doesn't you like me and you know in, in my mind course. I was this you know tortured by yeah this tortured Byronic hero in that scenario mm. but my friend wrote his version of it and because he ended up meeting this girl that night who he dated for several years after that. And in his version of it, he was having this meet cute experience while his idiot friend in the badly fitting op shop suit was running around the background being like, why isn't she talking to me? Why does she like me? What's going on? Why is this happening? And just like embarrassing him and throwing him off his game constantly. And I remember reading that and being like, that is not how I remembered that. But in reality, you're probably more right. But this comes sure. back in a weird way to, I think what I was talking about before about like Maggie and Nelson being in the same universe but having different worlds. So, because that same experience, that same party we were both at, in my world, it was this dark, angsty drama. Yeah. In his world, it was the opening scene of a rom-com. That's right. And you were the funny comic relief just bumbling around the side of it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and it, it makes you kind of go, which is true. And I think in some ways, it was that thought that led to, you know, what, what one of the key themes in True Colour is, which is, which is empathy, which is mm. one person's romantic comedy is another person's cautionary tale. You know, Nelson is living out a romantic comedy, but at the end of it, he realises that to Juliet and Adele, he is a cautionary tale. Yeah. Like, yeah, they will go yeah. away from this and they'll be like, well, we've learned a lot of lessons about, you know, trusting guys. And he kind of has to wear the fact that that's now who he's going to be forever to them. He doesn't get mm. the girl. He doesn't win. Things don't work out for him. He learns a valuable lesson, but he still ends up hurting somebody because of it. And I've always been, I think, fascinated by how the same experience can be just seen drastically differently by two different people. You know, it's when you catch up with high school friends and you're reminiscing and you're talking about one thing happening and somebody's like, that's not what happened. This is what happens. And you kind of stop and you go, well, we're relying purely on memory. So yeah. which is true. But at the same time, it speaks to the fact that all of our perceptions of things can be just so drastically different because we're limited by the fact that we are ourselves and we are informed entirely by our own biases, hangups, uh, flaws, fixations, whatever else. And in some ways, weirdly, given that it's like a first person, very limited perspective book, that was something else I really want to explore was mm. the idea of perspective and the idea that every single person has their own story, but their story might be very different to yours. Yeah, I was going to say that what I was thinking of the whole time when you were talking about the yeah different people having totally different takes on the same events. I think that is one of the beauties of fiction, particularly told from multiple point of views, is when you can show different characters literally reacting to the exact same events and having, yeah, totally different takeaways from it. But it is interesting how that is done in a, in a context like True Colour, where you do only have one perspective to work from. But I think it does do a good job of kind of making you aware of how, yeah, for different people, they have 
their own stories going on around the sides of Nelson's and stuff like all the stuff with Matt in there and like the other characters up at the lodge and everything you really do get a sense that yeah you could be also reading another book which is from one of their perspectives and Nelson would be you know like a, a side character in that um, and I think you were saying that was originally going to be kind of one of the ideas for the overall series um, following on from the true color you were going to have I think was it the second book from like a different character's perspective or but Nelson would still sort of be a side character or something like that yeah so originally my plan for those who've read the book originally my idea was that I would write a second book from the perspective of Madison who is sort of a supporting character throughout this and the second book would be about her and Nelson trying to make a film together which is sort of where they're left at the end of this book yes. but it would be told from her perspective but you would also see some of the events of true color from her perspective and they'd look very different and and I really want to play with that because as I've spoken about to you before I'm very much a big fan of Tana French and the fact that and the way that she writes a series of books where it's every book is from a different detective's perspective on the same murder squad and often one character will look back at the events in the previous book in a way that shines a totally different light on it. So I kind of love the idea of doing that in the high school setting, but, and, and it felt like it, it dovetailed thematically quite nicely with what True Colour talks about towards the end. But in, in actuality, when I sat down to try to write that second book, I think I started about three or four different times and it mm. just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't find it. And I did so much work in it that I would one day love to revisit it. Like sometimes it just so happens that, you know, you'll be working on a story and for whatever reason, it's not landing. And then you realize that there's just one change you have to make. And suddenly that unlocks the whole thing and you're able to sit down yeah. and it all just flows out beautifully. And I'm really, really hoping that happens with my follow-up idea about Madison one day. But hmm. for now, that idea is kind of on ice. But I just, I, I, I still love the idea of telling, you know, six different stories set in the same high school where one character is yeah, a supporting awesome. character in one story and the main character in the next one. But for now, I'm, I'm sort of focusing on different things, but I would love to come back to that one day. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to read that as well, for sure. Um, one of the, the things I found very interesting about this book, um, amongst, amongst many things, is uh, kind of reminded me a bit of Bruce Springsteen's song, I'm on Fire. And specifically a, I don't know if you've had this comment yet. This is a very- No, I know. And, and my, my only response that I have so far is, Please go on. Excellent. Uh, I like this line, especially then. Exactly. Um, no, just like I remember when I was watching. This is such an obscure thing that like three people who like Springsteen will get. But when I was watching like the music video for "I'm on Fire," which is where Bruce Springsteen is like some mechanic servicing the car for this like woman that he finds attractive or whatever, and then yeah, he drives back to like give her the keys, and he's going to knock on the door to give the keys and maybe ask her out. But then he realizes that she's married, so he just leaves him in the letterbox and and goes home. One of the comments for that was saying about how the song is really beautiful because it's such a short song. And just when you're like kind of getting into it, it's, it vanishes really quickly. And I think the overall length of the song is like under two minutes or something like that. Actually, I'm going to check yeah, out what that is. It's um, one of his shortest songs. And I've definitely yeah. felt that way listening to it because I love that song, but it does, it does kind of peter off quite quickly, particularly when you compare it to songs of his like Jungle Land or The River or, you know, those like seven, eight minute long opuses. And Armored Fire is like so short, but it does so much in that small amount of time. Yeah, it is uh, uh, two minutes, 35. Okay, so a little bit longer than I said. But yeah, um, it just kind of reminds me of, of True Color in a sense, because like just when you're getting into the story and you're really appreciating this, this unique and um, empowering world that Nelson finds himself in where he can, you know, become someone different and where he's really enjoying it, just as this world is sort of, yeah, kind of opening up to us, it all starts to crumble down so quickly. And there's like 
this sense of, ah, oh, like we only got to appreciate this thing for, for such a short period of time before, yeah, all the lies that Nelson has been telling kind of come out um, and before he has to sort of head back down to his regular life. Uh, and it kind of reminds me a bit of, yeah, just like, I guess, high school in general, where a lot of people have an experience where they don't enjoy it. And then as soon as they start appreciating it, it's in the couple of weeks before they have to leave and they can yeah. never come back to this environment again. Um, yeah, so first of all, Gabe, how dare you not write a 900 page book about Nelson up on the ski lodge? Uh, <laughs> and second of all, was that something you were kind of thinking or was that a, a bit of a happy accident or somewhere in between? Um, somewhere in between, because I, I love that you say that because to me, I, I guess it just comes back to my own experience of being on the mountain at that time. Mm. I mean, and again, you know, nothing, nothing nearly as dramatic as what happens to Nelson in the book happens to be in real life. But it, it was so formative. Uh, don't try to throw the police investigators off. They're going to get no, you. No, no, yeah, them. look, all right, you got me. I was sort of trying to head off, head, head off the investigation, <laughs> but here we are. Um, no, I mean, in real life, honestly, it was, it was, you know, I, I went up the mountain every weekend. I hung out with the staff. Uh, I flirted a little bit with, with girls who were coming up from the city, which was a very new experience for me at the time because <laughs> no girls at Mansfield Secondary College were interested in flirting with me at that time. But, um, but you know, and, and then it sort of ended. And I, I remember already feeling kind of incredibly bittersweet about it towards the end because when you're that age, I feel like everything feels like it goes on forever until it's suddenly gone. Mm. And that was how I felt about that winter. You know, I was, I remember every single weekend going up there with mum and dad and being so excited to kind of hang out with the staff and be in that world and have this complete freedom to do whatever I wanted, whether it yes. was, you know, if I wanted to go out skiing for a day, I could, if I wanted to sit inside and watch movies and drink hot chocolate, I could do that. If I wanted to, you know, it was, it was like this complete playground because mum and dad were too busy at the time to ever kind of check up on me. So it was really my first taste of, I guess, what adulthood would become like sure. of, of not really having anyone checking up on you of having this freedom but also of being surrounded by adults who treated you like one of their own. And I think it took me a few years to realize the power of that because up until that point, there, there really hadn't been any adults in my life who, you know, who, who I thought of as adults who just spoke to me like I was their age, like I was able to keep up, who didn't treat me like a kid. And that was sort of so powerful. And I think in some ways has shaped the way that I work with kids nowadays. You know, if I'm doing school holiday workshops or whatever it might be, like the first thing I always say is, well, your favorite teachers at school were never the nice teachers. They were the ones who treated you like an adult. Yes. And I tend to think that teenagers and kids respond really well when they are being spoken to as an equal. And up on the mountain, that was the first time I experienced that, which, which probably doesn't sound like it's that big or that amazing a thing, but at the time it really was. And so mm -hmm. when that experience came to an end, I just remember kind of feeling like, but, but it, it can't end. It's got to, it's got to keep going. Like it's, it's it only just started, you know, like, and, and having that feeling and then feeling really, um, really broken up about it ending probably for like the next six months or so of just sort of waiting around and my mum and dad weren't going to go up to the lodge again. And I was so heartbroken because I realized very quickly that I wasn't really going to see any of these people again, because the people who do work up at those ski lodges, uh, they're, they're flighty, you know, it's like 20 somethings who go up and they work three weeks so they work four weeks so they work the whole season or they move between lodges or they work a bit up there and then they go over to Perisher or they go over to you know um Falls Creek or wherever else but they don't really hang around so there is this constant impermanence baked into it and then you know the next year rolls around and you keep in touch with a couple of them but then the first thing you hear is that oh yeah nobody came back like we were the only sure. ones who came back and you realize that even if you could somehow go back again it wouldn't be the same it couldn't ever be the same 
But of course, by that time, you're focused on other things. You know, things mm. change so rapidly when you're a teenager. One day can be the worst day of your life, or next can be the best day of your life. And that <laughs> yes. was something I wanted to capture in the early parts of the book, where very early on, everything seems to fall apart for Nelson. But he finds himself in this totally different state of mind once he's up in the mountain and once he sort of realizes, oh, hang on, I've got the, all these new possibilities here. Mm. And that was something else I wanted to capture. So, so impermanence and the way that things can be so fleeting or they can feel like they drag on forever, but then in retrospect, you go, oh man, they went like that. And, and that weird sort of elasticity of time that exists when you're younger, how that does tend to mean that you don't really appreciate things until they're over. And I think the book couldn't have been any longer than it is, even though I would have really loved to write a longer book. I would have loved to have, you know, more scenes of the hijinks he gets up to with the staff or more scenes of different things going on at the mountain and whatever. But it kind of had to go quickly, you know, it had to, oh, it had to go quickly so that we get to the end and Nelson realizes, oh no, it's, it's, it's over. Like it, it you know, I, I kind of just had figured this out and now it's done. And it sort of ends at the worst possible time, right? Where everything kind of falls apart for him. And he doesn't have a chance to redeem himself. Like it's it's done. You know, he he can't he can't kind of charm Juliet and Dell back. He can't mm. make up for anything. It's just over, and he has to live with that. So so that kind of I guess abruptness there at the end. I feel like that was really crucial to the story. But again, it's just that thing where the way that I'm talking about it now is very much a retrospective understanding. You know, like I'm talking about it now as if any of this was planned. But in reality, these were just this was something that I kind of landed on as I wrote the book and as I explored different avenues. And then of course it was edited down and more stuff was added and stuff was cut and, and on and on it went, as is always the case when you're kind of in the process of putting a book together. And then in the end, you kind of end up with something where you look at it and you go, I am going to claim that this was all intentional because Absolutely. it suits my purposes to, to do so. Yeah. I know the feeling very well. <laughs> do you, um, do you think in a sense that kind of writing this story, obviously it was a very long time ago, but do you think in a sense it kind of helps give some closure and some, um, yeah, like kind of bookends the end of that experience for you? Is that something that you were thinking about while you were writing it at all or not really? Um, it probably wasn't something I was thinking about as I was writing it. But again, you know, it's that, it's that retrospective thing where I, before I wrote this book, I think I always knew on some level that I wanted to say something about that period of my life at yeah. some point, you know, I, yeah. I didn't know in what form that would be. I didn't know when I would do it or how I would do it, but that urge was definitely put to bed when I finished this book. Cool. Because in some ways I think everything we write is because there is something in our lives or in our psyches or whatever it may be that we have to somehow explore or pay tribute to or say something about. And that's true of whether you're writing a blog post, whether you're writing a book, whether you're writing a play, whatever it might be, the, the urge or the inclination to write something doesn't come about unless there is something you sort of have to work through. And in some ways, I think writing this book started off from a place of just wanting to pay tribute to a time that meant a huge amount to me. And that's kind of why I hewed in some respects, close to reality in terms of the setting, in terms of the, you know, the world of the mountain, but also Nelson's circumstance where the story starts. And the character of Robbie is a real person, uh, down to the fact that her name isn't even changed. Like, yeah, and she's somebody who I'm still, yeah, yeah. She's somebody who I'm still very close to and I still talk to very often. And she was the first person to read the first draft of this book. And oh, awesome. I asked her if she was okay, if, you know, if, if I kept her as she was, because I kind of felt like, keeping Robbie essentially as 
she was as I remembered her down to even including her name felt to me like the best way to link it back to the real life events, you know, to kind of say that in, in the real life world that I lived in, in the parallel universe of this story, Robbie is somehow constant that connects the two. And, and like, I don't know that that's, that's an incredibly inarticulate and and wishy-washy thing to say. (laughs) Robbie is the Stanley of the Bergamoseverse. Yeah, maybe. Um, I don't know. (laughs) I, I just kind of felt like that was a way to, to sort of nod to the fact that no, in some in, on some level, this is a true story. Yeah, but it's reality. also been embellished and fictionalized, and and all of that. And um and and so yeah, you know, I think that was that was definitely the the cornerstone of the whole thing was wanting to to say something about that time in my life. But then, of course, as I wrote, you know, that that wouldn't have ever been enough. You know, I, I couldn't have just written a diary that was. I'm trying to remember what happened 15 years ago, and, and uh, I don't really remember it. And I, in retrospect, it wasn't that interesting. So, I mean, that was never going to be what it was. Sure. And, you know, obviously there was more I wanted to say and more I wanted to explore that built from that, but that was definitely the starting point. One of the things you mentioned before, which I, I would like to, to explore a bit further is that in a lot of ways, the true color of a little white light, it's advertised as like a, a rom-com and it definitely is, but it like subverts the traditional structure of a rom-com quite dramatically in the sense of normally with a rom-com you would have, you know, things are going well between the two love interests or whatever, and then something happens and they go really badly and then the main character somehow recovers and it's all happily ever after from there but as you identified before right at that kind of second act where you know things are starting to go really badly for the main character there's no redemption from there yet despite that the book still feels hopeful and it still feels like a very satisfying ending um how did you kind of manage that because that's kind of a difficult thing to pull off well i I think I think in some ways the marketing of the book is a little bit deceptive because it's been marketed as a rom-com and I, I understand why it's been marketed as a rom-com and sure. I think it probably should be marketed as a rom-com because that for, for you know, uh, four-fifths of the book, that is what it is. But from the start, I didn't think of it as a rom-com when I was writing it. That wasn't what I had in my head when I set out to write this story. I was probably thinking more of things like the way, way back or the age of 17 or those kind of coming of age stories. But as it went on, you know, the, the romantic comedy side of it started to bleed in more and more. And, you know, like, and I probably shouldn't admit this, but I love a good rom-com. You know, I love Bridget Jones's diary or the big, the big sick <laughs> or, or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, so, so I definitely think that some of that did, did bleed into it, but it was really important to me right from the start that Nelson did not get the girl in the end. Uh, That's, it was more important to me in as far as this with his story that he walked away having lost the thing that he wanted, but being a better person because of it, because I felt like that had more power in some way. So I didn't think this book would at all be something that would have any potential of being remembered or being discussed or having any punch whatsoever if it had a traditional ending. And at the same time, you know, because because of that inherent impermanence and and tendency for things to, or, or for the nature of how you perceive things to shift so drastically and rapidly when you're a teenager, it didn't feel wrong that Nelson still ends in a hopeful place. Like he's still got plenty to be hopeful about. He's kind of, he, he, you get the sense at the end of the book that he's going to do a bit better at school from now on. You know, things aren't going to be as tough for him. He's a bit more self-assured. He's got a better understanding of things. And there was a bit of sweetness to it, which in some ways I think reflects, you know, my own real life bit of sweetness about the experience. But, but, you know, I think you can have both, you know, you can end the story in a way that is a bit complex and isn't, you know, all 
sunshine and rainbows and celebrations or all dour depression and sadness. I think in real life, our stories tend to end somewhere in the middle. Mm. And I've always been drawn more to stories that have that honesty of being like, well, this didn't work out, but you know what? This did, or this worked, but this happened. You know, we lost this because of it or whatever. I always think those are more interesting endings. So, so yeah, I think I was never going to write a, a neat kind of bow on the top ending at the end of this book. But I also think had I done that, it would have been a dishonest story. It would have been a dishonest yeah. story and it wouldn't have been the story that I set out to write. But I kind of love the fact that it's got this, you know, Netflix rom com cover <laughs> and the fact that it has been marketed as this bright and funny romantic comedy because people will think people will think that's what it is. They will pick it up, reading it, thinking that's what it is and hopefully walk away with something a little bit more thought-provoking. And I'm not saying yes. it's like it's Shakespeare or anything, but just something that's like a little <laughs> bit more ambivalent about in some ways those rom-com tropes than maybe what readers have been led to believe the book is. Got it. So title for this episode, I'm writing stuff better than Shakespeare. Take that. <laughs> yes, that, that's a hundred percent what I said. That's, that's, that's what we'll pull away from this huge interview. Um, <laughs> yeah. Have you ever read uh, The Great Gatsby before? Um, actually, no, I haven't, which is, oh, a, is a deep and abiding shame, given that I just admitted to liking rom-coms, but I haven't read The Great Gatsby. <laughs> but I think I've got like three copies sitting on my shelf Oh, like wow. different people who've like who've lent it to me over the years and like you have to read this and i i yeah. will read it at some point but but so far no i haven't just wait another four years and then you can read it on the 100th anniversary which will happen in oh well okay that gives me an excuse to put off reading it i mean look i've still got like 50 animals books to get through so yeah i saw that um, post <laughs> it's that has been my journey of late but um but yeah all right so yeah, that gives me that gives me an excuse to wait a few years yeah um no the only reason i bring it up is because i think like it's one of my favorite books. I've read it, I've read it probably five times. It's one of the few books that like, um, you know, we were given to read in school that I was like, oh no, this is actually really good. And I'm going to keep rereading this after I graduate. But in a lot of ways, True Color kind of has very similar thematic preoccupations as Great Gatsby because with that, and I think the recent film adaptation with like DiCaprio and all those other people in it, like gives people this idea that Gatsby is this very like, I like this very fun rom-com glitzy you know like romantic tale um and even the the director of that recent movie said that but it's really kind of almost a cautionary tragedy about not being blinded to pursue things that you're not actually like that aren't actually how they are in reality um and yeah it just reminds me a, a lot about about um kind of Nelson's arc within this because yeah, in, in Gatsby, the narrator, uh, Nick Carraway, is kind of enamored by Gatsby and kind of who is this, yeah, very like rich and um, charismatic, you know, socialite in, in 1920s New York. Um, and Nick is, is just sort of this guy who's come over there and has just met him and kind of, yeah, falls in love with the lifestyle and everything. But then at the end of it, the stuff that Gatsby kind of goes through makes Nick realize about the importance of like not actually yeah, just being blindly committed to, to things or people that you don't know are the way that you think they are. Um, kind of a convoluted way of explaining it. But uh, yeah, it just has like a, a lot of uh, kind of similarities to the true color. So I would definitely recommend checking that out. Um, and kind of a, a similar length as well. Like I think that's about 40,000, that's about 50,000. I think true color is around about that mark as well. It's about the same um, thing. I mean, no, that's, that's obviously it's a, I mean, despite having not read it, I'm clearly aware of its stature. And that's, I mean, it's a, it's a hugely flattering thing to say. And I think it's just like one of those, it is one of those like fascinating themes because I'm, 
I think I love in some ways reading about and writing about the moment where the scales fall from your eyes. Like and whether that's yeah. to do with like a, a parent or an idea you had about life or a friend you looked up to or a sibling or whatever else. Mm. I think one of the, one of the key moments of all of our transitions into adulthood is the moment where we realize that that thing that we idealize, and it could be a person, it could be a place, it could be a time, it could be anything. But that moment where we realize that that thing that we idealized maybe wasn't as great as we thought it was. That's not to say that it's not good or it doesn't have positive elements. That's just to say that our very idealized, very, uh, for want of a better word, Hollywoodized conception of that is incorrect. And I think that is so interesting because when we are young, I mean, where do our ideas of romance come from? They come from movies. Yeah. They come from books. They come from watching. Not reality. <laughs> exactly. They come from watching and consuming idealized versions of things so that, you know, when you are kind of stumbling through your first awkward teenage romance, you might be listening to the kinds of songs that you would hear in rom-coms and imagining sure. there's this movie scored to those soundtracks and everything. And you know, like I think when my first girlfriend broke up with me, like I sobbed on the floor of my room to Green Day's Wake Me Up with September End <laughs> at the end of it. And I was sitting there being like, I'm drenched in my pain again. Because like, the quotes were just so apt and so pertinent, you know. But because because that is how we're conditioned to understand things when we're younger. Yeah, you know, we, yeah. we we look at everything through the lens of the stories that we consume. Mm. And it's as you get older and you kind of have a few of those experiences yourself, you realize, oh, hang on, that's actually not quite how things work i mean even the best fiction is only ever a writer's attempt to represent something and real life can always tend to be a little bit more complicated and i mean i, I think i've just kind of said that like well fiction can never really capture real life but i'm like i i realize that like what i've been trying to do in this book is kind of capture that moment of like yep. <laughs> beginning to understand the reality of things but but again you know it, it's like anything else i mean maybe that sounds a bit meta but it, it still is an attempt to capture a very real experience but obviously in a fictionalized way that is a little bit more structurally sound than our real life narratives tend to be. Yeah. It's like a more coherent kind of piecing together of these yeah, disparate events and, and, and things that would have happened to you in a way that, yeah, is able to, to allow other people to relate to them. No, I definitely think that that's like, yeah, for me, the, the whole point of fiction is um, there's this great quote by uh, this like architectural critic, Ignacy Sola Morales, who said that, good architecture like connects people more deeply with um no wait what was it it was like good architecture connects people more deeply with like a sense of what reality is in the sense of you know like there is a doorway that just lets you into a house and then there is a doorway that like really feels like you're transitioning through two different spaces and is giving you this experience of journeying or progression and that's connecting yeah. you more yeah. deeply with um kind of yeah what it means to to be alive and I think that good fiction does that as well it kind of connects and articulates things that maybe were in your subconscious but you didn't have the vocabulary or or sort of the um yeah the visuals to understand or process that experience um and yeah I think that's what true color does pretty well I mean I think that's the other thing you know because I always joke about when somebody comes up to me and says, oh, like I loved the book's exploration of this or I love the symbolism of this. And, mm. you know, nine times out of 10, that's unintentional. And you always go, <laughs> yeah, definitely meant to do that. But, but, but then I don't know if it, I don't know if it is completely, you know, I mean, it's, it's unintentional, but I don't know if it's completely 
a, a long bow that's being drawn by the reader because often they're often you don't realize what you were trying to say or explore with a story yes. until years later. You know, there's been so many times I've looked back at something I've written at a certain time in my life and I've gone, huh. Funnily enough, like at that time in my life, I was going through X, Y, and Z personally, hmm. and I wrote this, and suddenly I realized there's a link between that and that. And, you know, it's it's often quite interesting and quite like terrifying to realize that your readers figured it out before you did. <laughs> yes. But I guess that's kind of the game, right? Like, unfortunately, writing is a matter of trying to take take aspects of whatever it is that fixates or moves you and put that on the page. And unfortunately, or fortunately, if you do it well enough, there is something inherently exposing. exposing about that. Yeah. Yes. And, and you just sort of have to live with that for better or worse. Well, Neil Gaiman had that great quote, which is that the moment when you're writing and you feel like you're walking down the street naked without any clothes on and everybody's looking at you because of how yeah. much you're bearing your soul to the reader is the moment when you're doing it right. So yeah, I think that's definitely good when you when you get those moments when the reader's like, oh, so this is something that you struggle to think about a lot, right? And you're like, oh no, not at all. Hang on Damn, a second. I don't want you to know that. No, <laughs> yeah. go, go back to thinking it's a rom-com. Like stick yeah, with exactly. that reading. Of it. Bright and light and fluffy and, and totally not, yeah, yeah. not the new thing I'm struggling with. Um, <laughs> I'd love to talk a bit about the, the movie adaptation process with this. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very unfamiliar with this. I, I don't think I've actually read any uh, articles about what's happening with the movie stuff. So yeah, just talk me through what's going on with that. Okay, so basically uh, the film has been optioned by Pirate Size Productions, who are a Melbourne-based production company who I've worked with a bunch. For like Pencil I've Pals and stuff like Yeah, so yeah. I, did, I did an episode of their preschool show, Pencil Pals. Um, they currently have... A few, I, I don't actually know if I'm allowed to talk about some of the stuff they're doing at the moment, but suffice cool. to say that they have a very exciting project in active development with a major streaming service at the moment that will hopefully be announced very soon. And there are some quite big names attached to that, but you know, anyway, so they've, they've got kind of a lot of really exciting stuff going on. And um, I'm very good friends with Dan Nixon, who's the uh, creative director at Pirate Size. We went to BCA together, so we know each other really well. And basically I gave him True Color quite early on in the in the writing process and he, he'd sort of always been aware of the book but Dan's got a similar background to me in that he's a country kid who grew up on the slopes of uh of Mount Buller and Hotham and Falls and everything and he's an avid skier very much kind of understands this world and is fascinated by coming of age stories it's very much his kind of thing and yeah at a certain point we just kind of kept talking about it more and more and then he read a later draft of the book and got really excited about the idea of adapting it and um and then, you know, Pirate Size, they work out of the Australian Children's Television Foundation. So the ACF, who fund a lot of Australian TV shows for children, and they, they, they were behind um, like Paper Planes. So they've done feature films as well. Oh, nice. But basically, yeah, if there's any Australian children's TV show you can name, chances are the ACF were directly involved in its production. And so the Pirate Size offices are actually in the ACF building. And effectively, Dan got talking to them and they said, well, you know, why don't you apply for some funding? And so we applied for some development funding and got it. So we got quite a quite a generous amount of development funding from them to come up with a treatment for a treatment for True Color, and then on the back of that, a screenplay. So at the time of recording, I've delivered the screenplay and the treatment, and we're just kind of waiting to hear back from them in terms of whether they're gonna whether they might commit some more money to it, whether they're happy with it, uh, whether they want to drop it. We, we don't know what's going to happen from here, but basically. 
the idea is that the first draft screenplay that went through many, many iterations and uh, many, many kind of different ideas and, and, you know, different approaches will be the foundation from which we'll hopefully try to, try to, try to lead into the next stage of it being developed, whether that's finding a production partner or whatever else, or if funding can be attached independently, you know, there's so many different factors as I've kind of learned on, you know, the, the simultaneous development of the hunted movie, which is a bit further along, but you just sort of realize after a couple of these experiences that you kind of don't pop the champagne cork until the cameras start rolling. Yeah. You just sort of say, all right, look, you know, I mean, there have been, there are, there are all of those like amazing Hollywood fairy tale stories of somebody whose first screenplay got picked up and suddenly they got like, you know, a massive deal and millions of dollars and all of that. And for every one of those stories, there are several thousands of scripts that go into development, get funded, go through like, you know, pass oh, after pass yes. after pass after pass, get to the point where they're pretty much perfect and then squander in development hell forever and get left in some Hollywood executives drawer somewhere in LA. So, yeah. <laughs> so look, you know, I mean, at the moment, I'm really optimistic about it. I think the script's in a really good place. I'm really proud of it. We've worked with a really fantastic script editor who has been challenging in the best way in terms of how, how they've called the script to task at every level and made mm. sure that every aspect of it has been seriously interrogated. Uh, it's quite confronting to, to sort of take something that you've written in one format and then try to turn it into another one under the eyes of, you know, working screen professionals who have a very innate understanding of what is required for film to work as opposed to a book. So there, there, are, there are quite a few big differences between the book and the film. It's still ultimately the same narrative, but early on, there were just a few choices that were made that maybe I was in some ways initially resistant to but as it's kind of gone on, I've realized, well, the thing is the true color of Little White Lies is an incredibly interior book. You know, I, I mean, was gonna say that. most yeah. of it kind of takes place in Nelson's head. Like it's Nelson explaining events or explaining his feelings or whatever. And the big challenge from day one of the film adaptation has been, how do you dramatize that? You know, do you, do you have voiceover? Do you have a device where he speaks to the camera? Do you, you know, what do you do? Do you give him like an imaginary friend who he speaks to? Like, <laughs> like all of these were things that we discussed at different points. Sure. And you know, we've had to come up with creative ways around it. And it's been a really, really interesting process. But in the best way, I've kind of come out of it understanding the book a little bit better, which I think mm. is the, the best possible outcome, really. Did you find it quite, what was, the, what was the gap between the book being finished from your end, like not having to write it anymore, and then doing the screenplay stuff? Um, well, the, the weird thing with True Colour is that it's, I'm trying to think, it, Compared to my experiences of The Hunted and definitely of The Inheritance, it didn't go through that much editorial comparatively from the version that I initially submitted. Like there were definitely elements of, oh yeah, can we build this subplot up a bit or strip this one back? And I think there was one, there was one major subplot that was changed, but not even that drastically. It was just a few beats of it that we realized weren't landing the way they were supposed to. And that was overhauled a little bit quite late in the process. But but, you know, realistically, I, I, I don't think I'd seriously sat down to like live in the world of True Colour and do extensive rewrites since probably like mid-2019 oh, wow. or late-2019 yeah, might be the better way to put it. Like most of the changes that kind of came after that were fairly cosmetic. Um, so, so, yeah, it was it was sort of weird to kind of go back and start Nelson's story again from the start, and particularly around the time the book was about to come out and everything, and you know to have the book sitting there and 
to that confronting thing we have to read passages of the book and then sort of be like oh man i could have said that better i could have done that better or you know whatever else it might have been but but yeah you know it was also i think it was also in some ways the right amount of time had passed because i was able to come at it with slightly fresh eyes and i might have been a little bit more precious about certain things staying the same had the adaptation happened in in a closer time period to me actually writing the book if that makes sense that does make sense yeah yeah i can just imagine i, I mean speaking for me personally i think i would have find it quite a refreshing process to come back to this thing that i've been working on you know months or, or years previously um and kind of think how can i do this better or you know how can it. yeah reinvent i mean and, and look like a lot of the adaptation choices i think have been really strong like i mean the first big one that was really pushed by by the production company the script editor was to keep nelson on the mountain so in the film he doesn't go back down like in the film he goes up to the mountain at the start he has a humiliating experience in school goes up to the mountain at the start and stays up there yeah. so it really is like sense. he's he's in a new world and he doesn't kind of it's not broken up in the same way it is in the book the other thing is you know for example all right so, so here's here's like i think a key kind of book versus film exploration of how a certain moment's been reconfigured to have the same role in the story but be more interesting visually so for those who've read the book or those who haven't it opens with nelson attempting to ask out his crush madison and he's supposed to call her but he can't quite muster the courage to call her so he writes her an email and it's a really awkward email and it's really fumbling fumbling and faltering and then he spends the next few days avoiding her at school essentially not wanting to know the answer and then he gets the answer in the form of a letter when he's already on the mountain and it's really heartbreaking and sort of humiliating for him but it's a very like it's a very quiet, private sort of reckoning with the rejection. And that yeah, was how it was interior. supposed to be. And also it was completely lifted from real life. That whole, that whole oh, really? subplot essentially happened verbatim to me in real life. And that I wow. wrote basically that email to a girl I had a big crush on. And she wrote me a, a very polite, but very firm letter in response. And, <laughs> you know, anyway, not to dwell on the, the traumas and torments of high school, but in the film, Basically, the film opens with Nelson walking up to Madison at school, trying to muster the courage to ask her out. And it's kind of, we see different attempts for him to like try to ask her out. And he can never quite do it. And it's interspersed with him calling his best friend, Pat, who's moved away. And it's him calling Pat and Pat's like hanging out with his new friends. And Pat's increasingly just kind of getting frustrated and being like, Nelson, I don't, I, I don't have time. I don't, you know, basically Pat's kind of moved on. So you straight away kind of get a sense that like Nelson's clinging to this friendship that's gone. And particularly a friendship where the other member of the friendship doesn't really want anything to do with him anymore. And so I think straight away that kind of makes him a bit more sympathetic. And then what happens is that he ends up realizing that he has to set, he has to ask her out soon because this coming weekend, him and his parents are going away to the mountain. And you know, he's not gonna have a chance after that, or he's not gonna have a chance to see her after that. And you see that at home, he's like planned out this perfect date for Friday night, and he's like put all this thought into it and everything. And so anyway, at school, he ends up sending the email from a school library computer, but he leaves his email logged in. And oh, so no. Dale Dixon, the school bully, finds it, forwards the email to everyone in the school. Oh. And so he arrives <laughs> at school the next day and everybody's reading the email to him. Yeah. Somebody gets up and during their English oral and like reads the email as their presentation. It's like plastered <laughs> all over his locker. It's all of this so stuff. Good. And, you know, he's just like, he's in the, <laughs> it's living hell to him. And he's running around the place. He's trying to avoid Madison. He's trying to avoid everyone. And everywhere he goes, he's hearing his email read at him. And then he gets on the school bus at the end of the day and everyone on the bus is like, Nelson, Nelson, come sit down. And they sit him down next to Madison. And they're oh, like, no. Madison, what's your answer? What's your answer? What's your answer? <laughs> Nelson's sitting there like shrinking in the seat. 
and Madison's like sitting next to him trying to read a book and everyone's like yelling at them being like, Madison, what's your answer? What's your answer? And Madison's like, guys, can we just, can we, can we just like, can we, but they keep like yelling at her and finally she just like snaps and yells, no, all right, no. And oh. like, you know, loudly rejects him in front of everyone. He's just sitting yeah. there just like, okay. <laughs> and then you kind of cut to him like getting off the bus and just kind of standing at the end of his driveway, just like completely shell-shocked. Totally dead. And that's sort of like the opening kind of five minutes of the film. Nice. So that's perfect. I love that. So, you know, it, it's the same It's the same kind of basic plot point, which is that he's tried to ask his crush out and he's been rejected, mm. but it's doing a bit of heavy lifting at the same time because instead of Nelson telling us or showing us through flashback, oh, I'm a loser because of all these things, you kind of see it in action. You kind of see yeah. like, this is like, this is his life. This is what it's like. This is how people treat him. It's all stemmed to this like one stupid choice he's made. And so essentially like there's... Um, and, and there's like a little bit more cause and effect because there's one beat where he like, before Madison rejects him, he tries to convince his parents to like, let him stay down for the first weekend and then he'll join them up in the mountain and eventually he convinces them. But after Madison rejects him, he just decides to go up with them that first weekend because he's like, well, I don't want to hang around at home by myself. Mm. And then it's him going up there on that first weekend that leads him to meeting Juliet. So right. there is a bit more of that like sequential X leads to Y leads to Z and so on, which is, which is so important for cinematic structure. So so there's things like that. Also, um, the staff members in the film have a lot more to do. So you kind mm. of, in, in the book, you know, Nelson kind of is cognizant of the fact that they have these dramas and issues kind of going on, but he's only getting little glimpses of it. Whereas in the film, you see the Matt Haley Ash love triangle play right. out. Uh, you see kind of a lot more of what Nelson's parents are going through. Uh, you see a bit more of Juliet and Adele's life behind the scenes and like what's actually going on in their own lives. So because it's a film and you're no longer tethered to one perspective, you actually get to expand the world a little bit and sort of yeah. show what's going on in other parts of it. And that I found really, really rewarding to do because in some ways it's almost like, oh, cool. I get to now actually show the deleted scenes of the book. You know, I get yeah, to yeah. <laughs> go outside Nelson's perspective and get to sort of build up in it a bit. And so in a lot of ways, it was kind of fun because it meant, it, it almost meant that I got to like, revisit the same story but but from a broader perspective and i kind of think that if the film is working as well as i think it's working at the moment the film and the book will complement each other quite nicely like they're telling the same story in a slightly different way but you know both the kind both will be sort of complete works in and of themselves but i think that taken together they sort of will work quite nicely but again i'm saying this at like such an early stage of development i mean who knows like <laughs> Who knows if it'll even happen? Who knows if it'll happen in a way that's good? Um, fingers crossed. But but yeah, for now, I'm really happy with where it's at. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, yeah, if it, fingers crossed it does happen for sure because I would love to see that. That sounds like a really great opening and yeah, it sounds like it'll really build off the, the stuff that you've created in the book in an even more visual way, which is always cool to kind of see that translation. How's the um, hunted stuff coming along? Is that still sort of ticking along in terms of development? The hunted is in a really really exciting place right now cool. that i absolutely cannot talk about nice. um just use I'm hand signals to indicate what's happening yeah, i'm happy to give that hint <laughs> but i think what i'm okay to say is that currently it is closer to going ahead than it has ever been up until now um there's some really exciting names involved uh there's a lot of really exciting things going on behind the scenes um I'm hoping that there will be an announcement of some sort pretty soon. Nice. But again, you know, I've I've played the Hollywood game before yeah, and I sort of know that nothing's ever a sure thing. So fingers crossed, but um, 
but yeah, right now I don't want to jinx anything by saying any more than, than that, basically. Yep, that makes, that makes sense. Um, all right, so I've got a couple of quick rapid fire questions for you now. And this Go is because it. I only realized you were wearing a Bruce Springsteen shirt about 10 minutes ago, even though I was talking about it earlier. Love that album, my favorite album of all time. My favorite album. Um, if you had, don't blurt it out because we can do a little game with this. So for each of the books that you've, you've published, so Boone Shepherd, Boone Shepherd's American Adventure, um, Boone Shepherd's Silhouette and the Sacrifice, um, The Hunted, The True Color of a Little White Light, and then I guess we can also go The Inheritance. I want you to think about what Springsteen song you would use to kind of capture the essence oh, of that book. That is an amazing question. Um, <laughs> my God, how do I? Oh man, um, okay. So the hunted is chasing wild horses from yep. Western Stars. Absolutely. I think I spoke about that in, a, in another conversation we had. Um, so that's that's far off, and I, I listened to that song a lot when I was writing the hunted. So that's sorted. Uh, I think True Color would be very pertinently growing up. Yeah, from, I would be shocked uh, if it was any other choice. <laughs> uh, yeah, what I mean, what else? Uh, the inheritance. It's funny because I'm like, that book is very much about Maggie's relationship with her father and or with various father figures. And so is most of Bruce Springsteen's discography. Um, but if <laughs> I have- Springsteen doing a song about his conflicted relationship- Oh, Adam Racing Kane. The Inheritance what? is Adam Racing Kane. 100%. Yeah, um, Yeah, no, The Inheritance is- Because like Adam Racing Kane, I think, captures the like the rage of that book. And the theme of inheritance in a really cool way. So no, inheritance would be Adam Racer Kane. I was going to go way back too, in time. A bit too Sorry? chill for. I was going to go Independence Day, but that's a bit too chill for what goes yeah, on. In Maggie's yeah, yeah. Then I was too chill for the inheritance. Um, now going going way back to the Boone Shepherd books. Um, yes. I listened to a lot of Bruce Springsteen when I was writing the writing the Boone Shepherd books. Um, funnily enough, the, the really obvious answer is like the, the unpublished first Boone Shepherd book, The Broken Record, which I've released for free on my website. Uh, that was, yeah, that, that was um, the one that we sort of skipped. I wrote that pretty much entirely to, to, the, to the tune of Thundercrack, like a B-side oh, nice. from early on in Bruce Springsteen's career. Yeah, so yeah, like, I've heard it. Yeah. freewheeling, awesome, awesome song. Um, it's very loose, very like free, upbeat, yeah. For Boone Shepherd, uh, the first one, I'm trying to think back. There was there was a Springsteen song that I listened to a bunch when I was first writing it. Um, I think I might I might skip that for now and go straight to American Adventure. Okay, because American Adventure. Funnily enough, I was listening to a lot of Bob Seger when I wrote American Adventure more than Springsteen, but. Um, Still a musician that is American and has the initials BS. So and you're still, not too far still dad this. rock. So, you know, um, <laughs> the heartland dad rock. So very yeah. much uh, in, in the same vein. Um, oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of racing through his whole discography now, trying to, trying to kind of figure out what the, what the right one is. So for, for, cause American adventure is a bit more rollicking and a bit more fun than Boone Shepherd was. Mm. And, you know, has a bit more of that sense of adventure, but which, which tends to make me lean towards something relatively early Bruce, uh, something probably from Greetings or The Wild, The Innocent, or even Born to Run to a certain extent. Um, 
or even I guess you could kind of fast forward to Western stars because it kind of has that Western infused thing. Oh, this, mm. this question is probably way more complicated than, <laughs> or, or, or becoming way more complicated than you intended it to be when you Hey, asked. that's fine. That's a, this uh, is a good discussion. But, but here we are. No, because you've asked me about Bruce Springsteen. And the thing is, the thing is, it's like, I could just quickly, you know, I could just fire off and say, oh yeah, Silent Sacrifice is the rising, uh, American Adventures, East Street Shuffle and Boone Shepherd is, you know, Backstreets or something. But but I kind of like, because it's Bruce Springsteen, I'm like, I've got to make sure I've got the right songs, you know, yeah, like I've got to yeah, really yeah. be like, okay, what are we, what are we working with here? Um, he will be listening and he will be judging your choices. He will absolutely be listening. And, um, and you know, for, for that reason, I've got to make sure that I, I get it right. Um, I mean, otherwise he'll never, you know, do the movie songs for The Hunted or for The True Colour. Well, exactly, because yeah. he'll sit there and he goes, oh, man, you're a fake fan, you know, you're not, you're not getting your head around this one. Like, you know, you're not working this one out fast enough. Um, Great Springsteen accent. Oh, I love yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrible Springsteen accent. But for our purposes, I think it's fine. Yes. Um, all right, I'm, I'm probably going to, if I, if I, let's go back to the first Boone Shepherd. I'm probably going to hone in on either the rising, I'm just going to just gonna go instinctively. I'm going to hone in yeah, on something yeah. from either the rising or from wrecking ball. So, oh, no, okay, so... Um, Silhouette and Sacrifices, We Are Alive from Wrecking Ball. Okay. Which is one of my all-time favorite spring scene songs. Interesting. Uh, American Adventure is No Surrender from Born in the USA. Born in the USA. Boone Shepherd is going back to number one. Drum roll? This is the hardest one because Boone Shepherd is like the most tonally difficult of all my books. So it was the first one, and it's hmm. like yeah, it's all over you know place. Boone Shepherd. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's it's really dark but really silly at the same time, and often in the space of a page. And I don't think I think like the later Boone Shepherd's kind of figured out tone a bit better than the first one did, and that kind of so I'm kind of trying to think of something that like captures that ping ponging tone quite effectively, which makes me think early bruce i mean i'm tempted to say blinded by the light just from an author's perspective but it doesn't really capture the book uh it, this um, is going into what's the it's not tempted to have a new phrase out that's like really upbeat throughout the whole thing and then at the end of it they're like oh this person just got carted off to the icu ward or whatever am i thinking of a different song i think you might be thinking of a different song yeah um i mean there's there's for you there's um spirit in the night there's Santa Anna, um, you know, these melancholic but jaunty early Bruce Springsteen songs. Nah, nah, Bruce Shepard's gonna have to be something from Darkness on the Edge of Town. And with that in mind, I'm probably gonna have to go with Badlands, I think, mm. because Badlands has that defiance to it. Um, and if you think about like the back half of the book where it sort of turns into this rebellion story, but if you also think about the middle of the book where it's the flashback section to Boone and Marbia, solving cases in England and so much of that is like you know the fact that they've been so rejected by the upper classes but they've kind of found their own way of defying that and of sticking it to the man a little bit and that defiance is there in Badlands so I think that there's a bit of a defiant spirit to the first Boone Shepherd more so than the other two and Badlands kind of is that like darkness mixed with like you know exuberant celebration anger I, I will 100% be lying in bed tonight and I will think of better answers yeah. for all three. But for now, I'm going to go with those three. Okay, so awesome. Badlands, No Surrender, 
and we are alive for the Boone Shepherd trilogy. Nice. I like that choice. Yeah. I'll have, uh, I'll see if I can uh, maybe put some of those into the show. I'm not sure how good my editing skills are, but we'll see if we can put those in. Yeah, so people who've never heard it can, land on. can understand it. Uh, and yeah, I'm glad that I'll be giving you some, some angst later tonight when you're realizing that you made the absolute wrong choices and now Springsteen will never work with you. Oh, uh, well, no, now, now I'm going to have to say the, now I'm going to have to say the Boone <laughs> Shepherd would be if I were the priest. Because that, that like, you know, oh, from yeah. his new album, from Letter to You, I mean, because I, I mm. love If I Were the Priest. It's such a weird song, but it's so great. But it does do that thing of being like, what is it? Is it like, are you, are you upbeat? Are you downbeat? Are yeah, you yeah. happy? Are you sad? Are you, are you about the Wild West or are you about religion? Are you sacrilegious <laughs> or are you religious? I don't know. Like, it's just no, look, I mean, no, it's, probably, it's probably not. I'm probably just saying that because I really like that song. But no, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll stick with Badlands for now. Song for Orphans, I feel, could, could maybe work decently for Boone Shepherd as well. Oh, I mean, uh, like the whole that. trilogy, like, you know, the, the mm. um, overcoming, yeah, I mean, you know, kind of stepping up and realizing that this is, this is you now and you now have the power and you're an adult and all of that. I mean, oh, man, Let It You was such a great album. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm excited to see what happens next because it, it doesn't look like he's slowing down anytime soon. Even well, though apparently he's finished seven. another album. Already. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. No, he, awesome. he mentioned offhand in like some recent interview, he was like, um, he was... Yeah, he basically just offhand was like, oh yeah, there's this new album that's going to come out pretty soon. So I'm like, yes, tell me more. Because I loved Western. I mean, and it's so funny because when, you know, when Western Stars came out and, and rocked and I was mm. like, this is so cool. And then when he announced he had a new one coming out a year later, I had like Vietnam flashbacks to, um, <laughs> to like the same thing happening with Wrecking Ball and High Hopes because, you know. Wrecking Ball was based, High Hopes. Mm, High Hopes parts. is probably the worst Bruce Springsteen album. And I mean, that said, it's got good songs. In it. Like it's got The Wall, it's got the Tom Morello version of Ghost of Tom Joad, even though both are better live. But it's it probably is like the, the most inessential, like scattershots, like incoherent Springsteen album with like just a bunch of songs. And I'm like, what? I, like, what's that? Yeah, what's how his, his signature what's is sort like, of how narrative and, and cohesive all of his songs and his albums are. Like you can really read them as a piece. I always think about his albums as like short, like good short story collections where it's yeah. like they are, are all unified around certain ideas or tones or themes. And that, that, that kind of is what makes them cohere. But High Hopes didn't have that. But, but then, you know, when, and particularly when they said, oh, and Letters to You will also have 70s songs on it, like old songs from the 70s that he's repurposed. Like Janie Needs to Shoot the Song for Orphans and, yeah. um, and If I Were the Priest. If I was the priest. And I kind of was like, oh, no, I don't. I don't want to. I've seen this movie before. I didn't like it. <laughs> I mean, I want a new Bruce Springsteen album, but I don't want another High Hopes. Mm. And then it came out and I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. Like, pull off that trick again. Like, if you're giving us another album this year, Bruce, like, please give us, like, I mean, yeah, I want to know what else he's up to at the moment because, like, Letter to You and Western Stars were so different to each other, but both so vital and brilliant and just, ah, oh, it was awesome. So yeah, it's Letter been a good is. time to be a Springsteen fan. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just glad and pretty inspired by the fact that he's been doing it for 50 years and is still able to find something new yeah. despite, you know, hundreds of songs later. So really doesn't leave much of an excuse for us writers being like, oh, I had to do the same story again because I'm running out of ideas after five books. Yeah. I have yep. no excuses there whatsoever. <laughs> um, anyway, I think this is probably a good point to, to wrap up this interview. Uh, Gabe, this has been a fantastic discussion. Do you want to maybe end by talking about what's coming next from you, which I believe is The Inheritance? Yeah, so The Inheritance uh, hit shelves on July 28th. It is a follow-up mm. to The Hunted, uh, very, very close. And basically it sees Maggie from The Hunted hiding out up in Northern Queensland, kicking her head down when she is tracked down by a figure from her past who wants something from her. 
And without going into heavy spoiler territory for a book that isn't out yet, that brings her into a basically brings her into a nightmare scenario where she's forced to face up to her past and go on the run and chaos ensues. And it is a wild, raucous, rollicking, insanely violent exploration of the complicated relationships between fathers and children um basically uh so it's i'm really proud of the inheritance it's a very different book to the hunted it can absolutely be read as a standalone if the hunted kind of yes. put you off due to the due to the horror elements of it the inheritance doesn't really have any of that the inheritance if the hunted was like wolf creek meets assault on precinct 13 the inheritance is like john wick said in melbourne you know it's a it's a different book it's totally very different but um if you love The Hunted, I think you'll still find heaps of the inheritance that you really like, but it's, I'm, I'm really proud of it. And I am so excited for it to come out. The other thing that I have coming out this year, and I don't think this has been formally announced anywhere yet. And so I'll, I'll speak a little bit, uh, I'll speak around it a little bit just in case I get in trouble, but I have an Audible original coming out pretty soon. Uh, so it's a novella that will be exclusively available via Audible. And if you like the hunted and the inheritance without saying too much about it i strongly urge that you listen to this because it ties in this comes back to the uh the shared universe thing that we spoke about at the start it ties in quite intimately with both of them so i'll i'll leave it at that but um hopefully i'll be able to say more about that pretty soon that's right so if you've wanted to see nelson kill people with skis in the universe of uh maggie then get an audible subscription that sounds like the, the takeaway from this yeah i can't <laughs> promise that that's what you're going to get out of it but uh but particularly basically like confirmed other, i mean i actually think it's coming out before the inheritance but um oh, but anyway nice. we'll see what happens but basically it ties in very closely to the inheritance so um i don't want to say much more than that but uh all will be revealed very soon yeah no absolutely looking forward to to both of those coming out for sure um yeah gabe thanks so much for, for joining me again this is the fourth time we've had a podcast interview which is kind of crazy um just vlogging this franchise for all it's worth and <laughs> yep. uh, people seem to be enjoying it still so um for listeners out there if you want to listen to the first three conversations that we had actually had those on a different podcast called the novel analyst show i'll put a link to those in the description for this if you want to check them out um but yeah for now gabe thank you so much for joining us on the show thanks so much for having me again jed cheers for tuning in to wizards warriors and words did you know that I host another writing advice podcast called The Novel Analyst? Every episode, I analyze one of my favorite books to extract useful writing lessons. You might like to start with episode 46, where I analyze the brilliant dynamics behind Rob J. Hayes' eclectic crew in his grimdark fantasy book, Never Die. Or maybe you'd prefer my episodes on Mistborn, Harry Potter, or The Gutter Prayer. Either way, there's over 50 episodes for you to listen to right now. All you have to do is search for The Novel Analyst on your podcast player or go to anchor.fm forward slash novel analyst to start listening now. Enjoy. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Wizards, Warriors and Words. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.